Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the book I've been working on. It's called Start Finishing, How to Go From Idea to Done, and it will be released on September 24th, 2019. You may already know that I only really care about productivity because it's how we become our best selves in the world. All of us have gaps between what we think we can be, what we dream we can be, who we want to be, and what shows up day to day. Start Finishing bridges those gaps. The book will give you the tools, mindsets, and practices that help you do the stuff your soul is yearning to do, but that somehow seems eternally out of reach. It also features contributions from my personal friends, colleagues, and teachers, such as Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Laura Vanderkam, Jonathan Fields, Susan Piver, Joshua Becker, James Clear, Chelsea Dinsmore, Sereni Rao, and many more. I'm really proud of this book, and I consider it our book rather than my book, meaning that it would not have happened if it weren't for the amazing connections I've made with the Productive Flourishing community over the last 12 years. So, thank you. If you're interested in the book and you want to learn more and maybe pre-order it, check it out at startfinishingbook.com. That's startfinishingbook.com. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. And now, on to the episode. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. You know, so as a young artist or writer... You know, we're all taught to be on the look for good material. And, you know, almost dying kind of rips that all up because everything is miraculous and good material. It's whether I am clear enough to see whatever's before me and let it speak to me. So, so ever since I stopped looking for good material and worked on being completely transparent and present and open hearted and then Everything started speaking to me. That was Mark Nepo, two-time guest and the New York Times best-selling author of 21 books, including his newest book, Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression. We jam about why it's important that we express ourselves, the tensions we must live in as creative people, how we're all naturally more likely to be Renaissance souls than specialists, and what thrashing in our work is really telling us. We dive a little deeper into how Mark and I get through our creative processes as well in hopes that it helps illuminate your own. A quick audio note. The mics picked up some minor scratches on Mark's end and I didn't catch it before we were in conversation. It was more important to me to stay in the thread of the conversation than to pause, debug the sound, and get back into it and hope we can find the magic all over again. I'm Charlie Gilkey and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Thanks for joining me for a second time on the Productive Flourishing podcast. I'm really excited this time, I was excited last time, but this time um, you're talking about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is writing and writing in a way that's expressive in a way that um, really um, pulls up one's soul and puts it to page. Um, and so I appreciate that for many reasons coming off of a major writing project. So thanks so much for joining me. Oh, I'm happy to. It's wonderful to be back with you. It's great. Cool. Um, so your new book coming out um, in September 
is Drinking from the River of Light. And um, it's it's a different book. And we'll get into a little bit about that. But, you know, last time I started with saying I wasn't going to start with a process question. <laughs> but I'm going to lean into it this time because I always love to hear the story of how one method of expression, in this case, a workshop, turns into another method of expression, in this case, a book, right? Um, so how did this workshop come to be a book? And what were the peculiar ways this river ran its course? Sure. And let me just start that by by putting it in a larger context, which is the frame of, of the new book. So, the, the, you know, the subtitle of the new book, it's The Life of Expression. And what I'm really exploring here is not a particular art form or craft of language and writing, but the deeper need that everyone, whether they create anything meaningful or beautiful or not, out of it, everyone needs a personal form of expression. And so let me just say, like, the way to understand this for me is we all we all have to breathe. We don't have a choice. You know, you don't say today, well, I'm not going to inhale today. You know, <laughs> no, it doesn't work. And for, for human beings, for spirits in bodies and time on earth, the way the heart breathes is by perceiving and feeling is the inhalation. And it doesn't matter what form it takes, there has to be an expression, an exhalation of heart, whether that's gardening or listening to music or singing in the shower or talking to elders or writing or painting or gardening or fixing cars. I mean, I'm looking wide and broad. So we don't have a choice about that. So it's not a matter of talent. It's a matter that in order to stay alive in your soul, we all have to have a way for the heart to breathe. So now to, to look back at, at this book and how it came about, and, and, you know, it really came about through relationship, you know, through Sounds True, and they did for a few years there these enormous, wonderful wake-up festivals that were out in Estes Park. I mean, I think something like 1,500, 2,000 people came. There were about 30 teachers. It was a great thing, you know. And, and Tammy, Tammy Simon, who's the wonderful founder you know and, and, and still leads, uh, sounds true. Tammy had asked me, they had pre-festival uh, two-day intensive workshops, and they asked three of us to, to design things for that. And so she asked me, would I be willing to offer one on writing and spiritual growth, which I was well, dear to me, but I hadn't thought about doing anything with it. I went, oh, well, thanks. That's a, that'd be a wonderful thing to explore. So I, I designed this workshop and, you know, being a lifelong teacher and a lifelong student and writer, explorer, inner explorer. So I put together this, this outline and fleshed out this two day thing that went very well and so much that we did it a second year. And then I had that sitting with me while I was working, finishing a couple of other books and it sat for a couple of years and, and I kept being drawn to look at that. I like, I loved the outline and all of a sudden, of course, I started to see the outline of the workshop as, huh, is this the outline of a book? It keeps calling me. And so then as I saw it like the, you know, as the spine of it, um, I looked through my other work and I realized I had a folder building for years with stories about all different forms of art, musicians, uh, painters, you know, sculptors, writers. And I also had a file for, as a lifelong teacher of, of quotes and other stories. And then I said, well, what if I throw all of this around this spine and see what it all says and how it goes together. And so as I did that, which took, uh, that took me actually six months to throw all that together. And then, and this is where the difference is, uh, I would say in process for me is listening to the material rather than imposing my will on it. You know, it was Churchill who said that planning is essential, but plans are useless. Because all planning does is hone your vision to better listen until the problem or the material or what's before you presents itself clearly. So this is one of the hardest things, you know, I've taught creative writing for many years at SUNY Albany, 
Well, this is one of the hardest things to teach young writers. Me too, when I was young, because we're so invested, of course, a vision comes along. We've never had a vision. Oh, my God. And so we dedicate ourselves. And for all young artists, when that vision starts to change, it doesn't go where we aim. We tend to think of it as failure. And what I've experienced, and you know, that's a larger problem of our culture that defines success as getting what we want and failure is not getting what we want, which is actually a very infantile definition of success and failure, because how do you ever grow? But what I came to understand for me was, it's like the, the work finally is, says, okay, now that I see you're serious, I'm going to show you what this is really about. And so it's actually, while we put all this work in, it's scaffolding, it's blueprint, it's preparation for when it comes alive. And then it's a dance with the unknown, bringing the unknown into view. And sure, we're participating. We're not just channeling, I don't feel, but we are participating as an inlet between what's inside us and what's in the mystery and in the world and in life and in the unknown. And so that starts, so as I listened to that material, it started to present all these places where I could dive and I realized it was a book that was not about, there are a lot of great books about craft and language. This isn't what this is about. This is under that. This is on the, the ways that articulation and perception and expression shape us by what we are drawn to bring into being. So then it, it, you know, then it had its, then it was on its way. Then it was a matter of filling it out and, and uh, being with it until, until it was done. You know, that reminds me a lot of um, what Elizabeth Gilbert said in Big Magic about ideas finding people. And when the, pe- when the person's really ready to, I'm paraphrasing here, she says it much more mm-hmm. beautifully. But when the person's really ready to receive that idea, then the idea knows that it can stay where it is and, and come to life. But if that person's not ready for the idea, it moves on and finds someone else who is. Um, so yeah. so she, she takes that. Um, what's interesting um, is that when I read that and sort of re, rebounding what you said is like there are some ideas that you catch and then there are some ideas that catch you, <laughs> right? Um, and you got to kind of know what you're in and knowing that that's a fluid dance of catching and being caught. Well, and happens. also there's a wonderful thing that's happened. You know, one of the reasons that there are a couple of reasons why I'm blessed to be prolific. And, you know, one, one big reason is that, you know, 30, I'm 68 and in my thirties, I, as you know, um, I almost died from cancer and still blessed to be here. Everything shifted in my understanding of art and my understanding of expression. Um, and, you know, so as a young artist or writer, you know, we're all taught to be on the look for good material. And, you know, almost dying kind of ripped that all up because everything is miraculous and good material. It's whether I am clear enough to see whatever's before me and let it speak to me. So, so ever since, I stopped looking for good material and worked on being completely transparent and present and open-hearted. And then everything started speaking to me. Everything is worth exploring and being in relationship with. You know, the, in the Hindu tradition, they have a term, Upa Guru, which means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. Well, when we can start to be open-hearted, and no one can be open-hearted all the time, so this is part of our own dance, our spiritual practice, whether you write or not, we need to do it anyway, is how, when we're, we're not open, how do we reopen? When we're not clear, how do we get clear and listen to the teacher that is is next to us? So, you know, I think the other thing about and so so two other things about that is one is that ever since then, um, regardless of what people say, because we live in a culture of expertise and certainly we can learn from other people, but everyone has their own wisdom and we are almost asked to defer in this culture of expertise. So I believe that we write about what we need to learn, at least I do, not what I know. And so when I look back at my books, there was no, looking forward, there was no 
plan or organization or path. But looking back, it makes total sense. You know, I go back to the book of awakening and then once awake, my next book was turned out to be the exquisite risk. Well, once awake, you got to take risks. And then my next book was on finding inner courage. Well, once awake and taking risks, you're going to need courage. And then my next book turned out to be 7,000 Ways to Listen. So after all of that, the only thing left is to listen. So it just, I look back and it's quite an instruction, but I've always, one of the reasons I'm prolific is that I write about what I don't know. And that process is the way that I learn. If I only wrote about what I knew, I would have written very little. The, fi the final thing about this is that, um, you know, again, when I was young, which is normal, and whatever your art form, like, I would see something very clearly and I would be excited and try to say it and I would miss, you know, I mean, I'd be so way off and I go, why can't I can see it? Why can't I say I'd try again? Well, you know, after five, six times, I'd have five, six poems and I still didn't do it. And, you know, as a young person, that was frustrating. And of course it, it, it you know, if you stay devoted, that compelled me to my craft, but I look at it much differently. Now, the only things worth saying are unsayable. And the way they teach us is that I try, and isn't it wonderful that in my six or seven failed attempts to say what I see, I was given all these poems, even though I didn't say what was there in the first place. It's not about that. I'll never say. It's like putting a stick in water and it refracts. It's never really sayable. But what all the literature in the world is the wonderful failures of reaching for what seems clear, but what can't be said. That's wonderful on so many different levels. And it strikes me that it, what strikes me is how much pressure we put on ourselves as creative souls in the sense, if we were playing, let's say basketball and we were going through, um, we are shooting three, or three, um, three point shots. Like we would expect to miss, right? A certain amount of them. We wouldn't expect even at the highest levels of performance, like Michael Jordan, or I guess Steph Curry right now, or whoever is the, the three-point master, doesn't expect to hit everyone, right? Yeah. But we, when it comes to our creative expression, when it comes to that way of channeling our energy, we expect to be able to hit it consistently and every time and on demand and in a hurry and all those types of things. Yeah. It's just like, what if we just gave her, like we gave ourselves a batting average. She used another sport. And it's like, you know, my goal is to like get it close to right a third of the time. And that's really great. <laughs> that's right. In baseball, if you hit 300, you're a hall of famer. Well, that means you miss seven out of 10 times, but this, I agree. And what's also important is even getting away from the frame of hitting and missing, unless we open up to that, and again, not just not just in creating art or poems or stories or painting, but in how we relate to life, there is no conversation. There is no growing. There's no up and down, in and out, trial and error. And so it is very important even to get away from that frame. But it's very true. We put, you know, and nature really affirms this. You know, it takes I was astonished to learn this. It takes six million pollen grains to seed one peony. And you're right. And we accept, no, we're going to do it every time. Part of the, I believe in effort, effort in grace. And the reason I believe in effort is because I don't know when grace is going to show up. Yeah. It's fascinating because um, I don't know if this is going to be what I write about next, but what I've been noticing is the spiritual life, the philosophical life, and the creative life all combined are about sitting in tension with two contradictory truths at the same time. Like, we can't be attached to a goal. At the same time, we need to be mindful of our goals, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that tension, and we can go through all of the different ones. And so, it's kind of that tension because you're absolutely right. We can't on the one hand, we can't be stuck in the mindset of hit or miss when it comes to our creative work. On the other, we have that feeling when we have completed our work that we either hit or missed, mostly missed, right? But we still have that feeling at the same time. And to be attuned to that feeling helps us lean into our craft more. 
Um, because if we didn't, then we'd always remain the the neophyte, right? Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things that that stirs in me. You know, one one is is how you know, and this is the relationship between our dreams, goals, and ambitions, and our life force. And it we need to have dreams, goals, and ambitions to to stir their they ignite the their their kindling for the aliveness of our heart. And I believe the soul doesn't care what you put on that fire as long as you light it. We're the ones who care about it. Like, it really doesn't matter. And so I think that our dream, it's important to do that so, so we kindle it. But to hold our dreams and intentions loosely because they will often lead us to something we can't foresee. Something we can't foresee at all. You know, there's a, um, and, and so there's a, a metaphor that came to me that I use in the one life we're given that, that really was a teacher for me. And it's just of a simple match, a wooden match. Now, we all know that in the tip of a wooden match, the flame is dormant, you know, and uh, just as in a, the seed of a tree, the full tree is dormant. So, and that match has to strike against a surface to release it's warmth and light. So to our gifts, our gifts do not release their light and warmth until we strike our gifts against the needs of the world. And this is, you know, very powerful that how do we, uh, so, you know, Mechthild, who was a female mystic, a German mystic uh, in the Middle Ages, she said beautifully, she said, a bird doesn't fall from the sky and a fish doesn't drown in water. Each creature must find its God-given element. Well, it's pretty clear for birds and fish. But we are such multifaceted beings that it's not clear to us what our element is. And thus the trial and error, thus the conversation, thus, you know, striking against different things until we see what releases our gifts and where we can best serve and be needed. And, you know, a story that... um, uh, this is begins my book of stories as far as the heart can see. A very short story uh, about a cyclist, a bicyclist, you know, like a Tour de France kind of guy, right? And he is training for a race, and he is so into it. You know, he's even he's got all the state of the art equipment. He's shaving the hair off his body to have little resistance. And the day of the race comes, and they're off. And over the first mile and a half, as they're going through country terrain, he comes over a hill. And as he's gliding down to the bottom of the hill, briefly, he's ahead of all the racers. You can't even see the other ones. And just as he's coming to the bottom of the hill, a great blue heron with its wings spread swoops over his handlebars. And he's, he's stunned. He's stopped. And he actually straddles the bike. And the other racers are catching up. And he stops because the heron opened something he was chasing. And now we skip to years later. And he's standing as a middle-aged person looking out into the woods. And once in a while, if you ask him, what cost you the race? He'll say, I didn't lose the race. I left it. And, you know, someone can look at, that's a very powerful story for me. And, and, Someone can say, well, that's very poetic, but he did lose the race. He didn't come in first. And I hold it differently because I think he trained to meet the heron, which transformed his life. But if you told him he was training to meet a heron, he wouldn't have trained. And this is why we have to hold our intention. We need those goals to get us to what we can't even foresee. We wouldn't even understand if somebody said you're training to meet a heron. You're training for a mind shift that will change how you perceive life. We wouldn't, need, we wouldn't even listen. Yeah, it's fascinating because, um, you know, the, the theme throughout both of our work is that as we create, we are created, right? And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the trick is that we think we know what we are becoming, 
But until we have become, we don't know what, what actually will manifest, right? And so that's that tension of living it. Is it like you got to walk the road, even though you know that you know it's kind of the Antonio Motato sort of um, yes, you know, wonder yes. there is no road. The road is made by walking, yes. right? Um, and so it's this weird sort of thing. Like you know, there's no road, yet you're walking it at the same time. Um, and that's the grace of it. And I think it's only when, well, it, I'll pause here because something else you, you, you said reminded me that like when I got stuck and when I continue to get stuck, it was super informative. Like when I got stuck with writing or when it just wasn't going, my rule, my number one rule was whatever comes up comes out. Right. Yeah. yeah um, that's great. If I didn't understand it, if it seemed weird, I'm like, no one's going to like this, whatever it was, a weird metaphor, um, whatever it was, it's like, whatever it is, it comes out because until it comes out, whatever's behind it can't come out either. Right. And so. Right. And just I think honor that, it. And I think part of the reframing of discipline or the living into a deeper discipline is honoring where the work goes, not where we insist that it go. And, you know, I have two examples for me from my work. Um, uh, both are actually with books that are are uh, not yet published. And one is a book years ago that I that I was exploring the um, the the metaphors from nature and plant life that apply to our inner life. And so I was I was doing this. I was really grooving along, and and I remember it was during the summer, and uh, and I hit this thing where I was reading where cross pollinating plants in the plant world, botanists call them outcrossers, but I couldn't find what the term was for self pollinating plants. So this is before this is just before computers and everything got digital. So I was teaching at SUNY. Albany, and I, I would spend time in that summer ranging through the physical university library, getting lost, looking for things, trying to find this. And it took me a long time. And then I remember I stumbled onto this actually out of print botany book. And the term that botanists use for self pollinating plants is selfers. And as soon as I saw that, outcrossers, selfers, I realized that was a whole book by itself. Like at that doorway. And, you know, first I was like, well, how is that going to fit into what I was doing? It's too big to fit here. And then I just said, no, all of that was for me to find this doorway, including all the work on the other book to to this. And I wound up stopping and spending about a year developing this book, which is is now done, not yet published, um, called While We Are Blossoms. And the original book is still not finished. But it was clear to me that that was a doorway that I went through. I had no idea what it was. And the other example is I have a, a one novel, spiritual novel that I've been called to write. And so it's a story, it's a, you know, a story, obviously. And, and part of it takes place in uh, India during colonial rule in the 1800s. And um, as the characters were developing, all of a sudden in the periphery, this uh, loose man-eating tiger kind of shows up in the periphery. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I welcomed it and kept going with the characters. And then it kind of showed up again. And then I realized I don't know anything about tigers. So I stopped and I, I did about two weeks worth of research on tigers, at the end of which it became the Upaguru, the teacher next to me at this moment. And I said, the tiger was saying, now that you've gotten here, I'm central to this story. Hello. And it just changed. And I could have easily missed it if I was saying, well, this is off trail. This is, this is if I thought discipline was what we traditionally think, oh, no, I need to keep to my outline. That's a distraction. No, that was where I was going, like the heron, that I didn't know I was going. And I could have easily missed it. And it cha it changed it revealed the real story at the center of the story revealed itself. You know, we've been jumping around um, a bit that I was going to ask you about, anyways. And this was um, in the section in part one of the book where it's a section about we relate more we relate more than we author. And yeah. in it, you say I'm going to quote real quick because I found this super poignant. Um, Over time, I have learned that we discover material; we don't invent it. And why I found that to be a poignant way to address it is that, you know, a lot of times writers will, 
will get themselves into a frenzy about having to be authoritative. Um, I have to speak, you know, in a certain way. It has to come across as a certain way as a part, as opposed to just being open to discovering what's right in front of them and opening. You mentioned this earlier. Your books have come from what you're learning, not what you have learned. Um, yeah. may pa- paraphrase that incorrectly, but, um, so I'm just curious, you know, as we've been hanging on there, just diving a little bit deeper, what has knowing you relate more than you author really done for you? Oh, my God. Well, let's, you know, I see behind you one of your on your blackboard there, that second one, success versus virtue. Let's let's use that as a way to to start to explore this, because success, the way we're taught, has to do with what we've been been saying to avoid or be mindful of is it's not where I intend and aim. And the word virtue is not, you know, we tend to think of virtue as uh, a set of character traits that we believe in and then we check off if we've done it well today or not. When actually more deeply, Plotinus defined virtue as our tendency toward unity. Our tendency toward unity. And there we go, okay? Because what, what you know, I believe, and th- this is really at the heart of what metaphysical poetry is is has always been about you know that was coined in the Elizabethan age and but actually in the East you know under a different name it's really what metaphor is all about is how do we discover the connections that are always present that we're unaware of and we do that through wholeheartedness we do that through our our attention. We do that through our presence, through our care, you know, through our devotion. And the reward for that is that we be, we experience oneness. We are made whole. We are made whole, which is different than accomplishing something. So the reward, so, you know, again, I think that I've always had an intuitive sense of that, but after my cancer journey, when I was dropped into my heart more than my head, then it became really a felt experience for me that, you, you know, in the beginning I was writing poems, I hoped, I, you know, the success side, you know, if I worked really hard, maybe, maybe over a lifetime I'd write one or two poems that someone would consider great, that might be added to the canon, you know. And then I, in my 30s, you know, I was just thrown inside out and upside down and almost dying from cancer and then say, forget that. I need to discover true poems that will help me live. I don't have time to worry about being great. I just want to wake up tomorrow. And now in my 60s, I want to be the poem. And everything I've learned is, you know, how do I? So it is about, and, and you know, I've had experiences. I'm sure you have too, where I remember I was with a friend, dear, oh, my oldest friend. We went to Montreal years ago in, in the botanical gardens there. They have one of the largest gardens of of cacti from all over the world and they're enormous you know you think a cactus is not so big these were enormous you know i mean these are like two three times the size of human beings and i walked in there and you know it could have been an abstract sculpture garden and i thought there we go nothing we can imagine doesn't already exist in nature but we are made whole by discovering it ourselves and you know so i think that we are again with our our the misplacement of our will throughout throughout history is that we have that artists have misappropriated and been mistaught to think oh this is where i get to play god i'm going to create something out of nothing and then on the seventh day i'll rest you know and uh when no 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 we we need to be of God, enthusiasm, the word enthusiasm literally means from the Greek, enthusios, it means to be at one with God. So enthusiasm is the result of, of unity. It's the state we arrive at where we go, oh my God, I had no idea. Oh my God. And that's the reward for discovering Material. You know, every time I discover a metaphor, which is kind of the innate way I've always been able to see, even as a little boy, I am solidified in my aliveness. 
And and uh, and so then the rest is just devotion to that moment. Then, okay, how do I phrase it? How do I unpack it? You know, I think the poet in me sees it. Then the philosopher in me tries to understand it. But it's the cancer survivor in me that then says, oh, how, how can I turn this into a tool? How does this work in our very specific daily lives? You know, and I think whether we write it down or not, that's the process. That's the deeper process that the new book is all about. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'm glad you sort of told the story about poetry because, um, and it may just be me, but I've always been a bit intimidated by um, poetry in the sense of when it's applied to writing as a peculiar art form or when we use adjectives like poetic. Um, but your use of poetry is much broader, richer, and accessible, right? As as I started working my way through the book. Um, and so I'm curious for people listening and the, I may be in a minority here, right? But for people who are listening, it's like, okay, so he's a poet and he has all these ways that he sees things. That's not really accessible for me. What do you have to say to them? Um, well, see, so poet, yeah. So poetry for me is not the manipulation of language on a page. Poetry is the unexpected utterance of the soul. And, so therefore, it doesn't matter if you write it down or not. When we are fully here, when we are wholehearted, everybody is a poet. It's optional. It's optional to write it down. You know, we write it down. I think I originally, when I look back, like most poets, I began to write it down to try to keep the wonder in view a little longer. <laughs> it wasn't about creating something or a co it was like, wait, wait, don't go away. I just saw this. Don't wait, wait. And so, you know, and so I invite anyone, it's not about understanding my poetry, it's about discovering your own, your own vibrant link to the truth of what it is to be here. That, the, the, the trail of that will be different for everybody. Yeah, that's the, and so there's one other thing that's very important as we string these together. And, and that's a mistranslation. You know, like, I'm very interested in the origin of words, not because I'm a word geek, but because I've learned that just like in nature, like a mountain can be eroded or a riverbank. Well, words over time get eroded. And so I've found more often than not that when I can somehow go back to a more original state, they're much more profound and helpful. And so here's one that got eroded and really mistranslated through the years. And that's the word perfect. The word perfect does not mean without flaw or without mistakes. The word perfect originally meant thorough. Well, that's a fork in the road in 2,000 years of education. Because the reward for being perfect is you actually remove yourself from life. And you get into those no-win scenarios that are behind you that you've articulated. Okay? But... The word thorough, the reward for being thorough is we are wholehearted. And when we're wholehearted, our tendency to unity is opened up. And then the unexpected utterance of the heart and the soul bring us alive, whether you write anything down or not. So this is a process, poetry with a capital P, that is important to everyone that's much deeper than an art form. Or language, you know, that's where it's, you know, of course, like my books are all, you know, I have, quote, poetry books, and I have spiritual nonfiction books, and I have story books. Well, you know, to me, honestly, they're all the same. They're all poetry. They're just different size canvases. And, you know, my publishers, well, this has to, where does this go? Where is this? And, you know, a great example of, of this is William Blake. William Blake, he you know, we read his poetry in the English department and we look at his paintings in the art department. They all were one. They all, it took me, I, had, I got a doctorate in English and it was after I was out of that that I first discovered, like, that was just malpractice in education, right? They all were one. He did, he did engravings and he hand wrote his poems into the paintings, into the engravings. We're the ones who pulled it apart. Oh, this must go in the English department. And this must go in the art department. And that's a great lesson for however, however expression comes to us. 
And there's lots of, I cite some examples in the book of, of people throughout history who were called to one form of expression or another. Like, for instance, George Bernard Shaw, who was one of, probably one of the most acute social critics or social theorists uh, in history. But he wrote plays. But if he had written them as essays or something, the unique power of his work, gift would have been gone. You know, Robert Frost, great poet. He really was a short story writer. Right? But he, his form was in rhymed stanzas. And if you had, somebody had said, well, you should write short stories, it probably would have just like put a pin in a balloon. And the same thing, you know, with Michelangelo. Michelangelo's, what it was, you know, his great work, The Sistine Ceiling, he was a sculptor. He didn't want to paint. And he was ordered by Pope Julius. Well, you're too bad. You're going to paint this seal. You can do what somebody's never, never done. You're going to paint this thing over your head. Good luck. And he didn't know how to paint. He only, so he was forced to take his three-dimensional gift and vision and apply it in two dimensions. And his genius came out of that tension. And if he had, you know, suddenly asked somebody, well, how should I paint? we probably wouldn't even pay attention to what came out. What I love so much about this is we've gotten to the place to where like we have terms like polymath or Renaissance soul or, you know, things like that, that indicate that there are seemingly a rare few people who have this convergence of different arts and art forms and interests. But my feeling is that's actually much more of our natural state and it's socialization and education and sort of the, you know, hyper-modern um, economic system that we're in that teaches us that we should be specialist, that sort of enforces that we're specialists. But when you really look down to it, like when people are in their true flow, it's always a hodgepodge of different expressions coming through. Like I'm super frustrated that most of the time when I'm writing, there's a song in the background that's playing in my head as I'm writing. <sighs> And then almost when I start post, I would be like, here's the song that's the background song to this. It makes no sense whatsoever, but that can understand the cadence or that can inform the cadence, the topic, how I'm approaching it, just because there's this background sort of thing that, you know, is a part of my creative process. It just yeah. doesn't show up on page. So let, let's talk about two things that that brings up for me. You know, one is that absolutely everybody has the same starting point and access to, to these gifts. So, you know, let's, uh, let's take another word that, that we go back to the original meaning, and that's the word genius. So the word genius today, you know, it, it's always meant like someone has one aspect where they're super brilliant, uh, uh, unprecedented, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, you know, whoever it might be, Stephen Hawking, you know, uh, Itzhak Perlman, whatever it might be, or, or Steph Curry with the three-point shot, you know? So, but the deeper original meaning of genius, it means attendant spirit. Everyone has an attendant spirit. It was not reserved for the few with a particular specialized gift. It was that everyone, everyone's aliveness is connected to an attendant spirit. And all the traditions have different names for it. Soul, Atman, Dharma, Holy Ghost, right? Soul, everything, you, you know, a million names for it. But this is where the word genie comes from. And in fact, you know, the movie, there's a movie out now, a remake of Aladdin. Well, the actual kind of mythic, kind of deep metaphor that's in Aladdin's lamp is that, you know, when you can embrace your life and rub the lamp of your life, your attendance, when you can embrace it, love it, your attendant spirit will appear and guide you. It will be your guardian spirit. So this is where we have to have a relationship with our muse, where we have to, again, listen and not impose our will. So, you know, that's just, uh, that's fantastic. So the, the G and the second thing that, that you raise here, which everyone, this is, again, one of the, the, the gifts and shadow of this thing we have as human beings, our consciousness. Now, we don't know what the consciousness of a rock is because we don't know the rock language, but let's assume that we do have a more advanced consciousness than other species and forms. But the, the paradox is, you know, the value of our consciousness is that we can gain insight 
and wisdom so that we don't have to reinvent how to hold up this coffee cup. You know, like I remembered how to do it. I don't have to refigure out how to do it today because I did it yesterday. Well, that's wonderful for those kinds of things. But as we've been saying, one of the purposes of the creative process is that we reawaken again and again our our freshness of being alive, like Adam or Eve, that every day we want to have every day be like the first day. So how, how do we, while, while our consciousness and what's in the background you mentioned we all have, how our consciousness, it creates <clears throat> assumptions and conclusions. And though, for, the, for the soul and the heart and the mind, though, that's like hardening in the arteries. We have to have some form, and I think expression, a life of expression, whatever form it takes, we have to have some way to empty out our assumptions and conclusions so our consciousness is constantly fresh, constantly fresh. And that's something we don't often do. We're so, in our cult, modern culture, globally, we're so that bigger, more, fill, 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 that we have no... And, you know, all the spiritual traditions offer us ways to empty. This is what all meditation practices are about. So we need to be empty so that we can fill up, so that we can empty, so that we can fill up. And what happens through that process, what comes through us when we're clear like that is the unexpected utterance of the soul. You know, there's a there's a wonderful little story about two, uh, you know, physicists who want, you know, they're drawn, they want to go out like to Nepal to talk to some ancient, you know, holy sage to, to because uh, see if their work and they have common, you know, because ancient Eastern thought is very much similar to quantum physics, just with different language. So they make this trip, they go all the way, they schlep all the way to, you know, Nepal, and they've gone by plane, by train, and then by Sherpa, and they're up in these mountains and, and the little hut, humble hut, and they're waiting and there's just a little table with three cups and a pot of tea. And they're waiting for this guy to show up. And they wait and they wait. And this old man with this long beard shuffles in. And without even looking at them, he takes the pot and he starts to pour the first cup of tea. And the cup fills and now it's spilling over. And he's still pouring. So the two physicists look at each other like, oh, no, like we came all this way and he's lost it. Oh, my God, he's not lucid anymore. And they don't know how to say something respectfully. And finally, one of the physicists says, oh, uh, your holiness, the, the, the cup is already full and still pouring without looking at him. The sage says, as are your minds, empty them in return and then we shall talk. This you know, I didn't want to bring it up earlier because it's a much um, cruder metaphor. Um, but I do want to pause here because we're talking about emptying. And um, in Start Finishing, I mentioned that the pain of not creating and not finishing what matters, um, my term for that is creative constipation. Mm -hmm. um, because you get to a point that just like physical constipation, you get backed up, you get toxic, you start telling yourself bad stories, you don't want to take in anymore. And... You know, the the only real solution is to move it, right? Is to really start getting things going. And, you know, we haven't talked, we've talked a lot about the positive aspect on that, but I did want to touch in on, like, if you find yourself in a place where you're dispirited, mm -hmm. frustrated, maybe a, a little depressed, not chronically depressed, that's a different thing. But if you're finding that, it may be that you just have about a bout of creative constipation, and that you're not exhaling and you're not speaking what's coming out and you're not in this river of expression. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, and I talk about this in my book, too. I, I appreciate what you're, you're offering there. We're, we're akin on this and I, that, you know, for me, we, you know, writer's block is not being stuck to me uh, where we don't know what to do. It's where. I, I need to clear things out. I need to be present again because the the river of what comes through never stops. It's me as a limited human being. So, you know, I, I always feel that when I'm, uh, two things, when I'm, um, when I feel not stuck, but where I feel like I can't uh, meet what's in front of me, 
or I'm tired or I'm exhausted or I'm just not sharp or I, I don't feel like it, like it's life-giving. It's not because the material isn't life-giving. It's because as a human being, I'm out of balance. I've been expressing more than taking in. And so for me, I have big, I always have a practice where when I get at a point like that, I stop and I, I want to experience anything that's new. Tell me a story, any story. I want to hear music I've never heard before. I want to see a bad movie. I want to, you know, I want to walk the dog on a different street. Just take in anything because again, th this from the freshness of what it is to be alive, and, I, and this is so imprinted on me from my cancer journey and almost dying, is uh, there's no such thing as bad weather. The only bad weather is no weather. And so, you know, this is why I, I really have a distaste for, I don't want to read reviews of movies before I see them, or of, of music, or, you know, even seeing a play, I will be thrilled at the privilege of seeing a bad play and to come out and complain about it because it's live theater. It's live. Th you know, so this is one of the reasons where, where and, and the Buddhists speak about this. This is how it applies here. What stops us up often is the legion of preferences we accumulate in our mind. Okay. You know, and I'm, I'm not slamming uh, Pandora here, but Pandora, the principle behind the, the app Pandora, which, you know, if I play music, it leads me to only to music I like. Well, that that's a doom loop. How do I ever hear music I've never heard if all it does is feed me what I already like? So it works wonderfully, but it's it's self-contained. And what I need when I'm stuck is something that's not me, anything that's not me. Teach me something. Tell me a story. Anything. So the, the other thing that this leads to when you talk about, I want to make sure we touch on is, and you talk about this background consciousness is, and this is something we, we, we do suffer as human beings with this amazing tool, the mind, that we always have a self-critic, an inner critic, and an inner watcher. Uh, Borges, the great Argentinian writer, has a poem called The Watcher in which he talks about this other side of him that's maddening to him because he can't get rid of it. It's always watching. It's always watching. And so what, you know, what this speaks of is when, when we are watching, because we are, are so conscious, but the, the, the shadow of consciousness is self-consciousness. When I am watching myself, I'm not present. And then I'm disheartened because one of the things that I've learned through time is as soon as I count and compare, I can't be present. It doesn't matter whether I'm counting up or counting down. <laughs> as soon as I count and compare, I'm no longer present. And so one of the, the key kind of um, barometers or diagnostic questions I always ask myself in the flow of up and down of being human is whatever moment I'm in, whatever choice I'm facing, through all the complications, however many times I go over it in my head, I try to come back to, is this heartening or disheartening? If it's heartening, lean into it. If it's disheartening, why am I doing it? And and the, the, the other thing about all this is when we do, uh, when we are in the river of expression, um, the river of light, it not only refreshes us, but it cleanses our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. So we see differently, we make different decisions and choices, and that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference indeed. You know, I like where we're hanging out. Um, another concept I'm going to pull from the book, because I want, uh, for, from start finishing to be clear, because I, I want us to be better about noticing our behavior and walking backwards into our inner dimension. Because I think a lot of times 
when we solely focus on how we feel or what we're thinking, we can get lost in the moment and not really understand what we're doing because we don't have that. So, um, a concept that I talk about in the book is thrashing, a very familiar concept where it's that part of your work where you're meta working, you're flailing, you're like putting a lot of energy in, but not actually getting anywhere. And you know, it's that sort of negative side of like, you're just not getting anywhere. Um, my, my thesis is that when we learn what we do when we're thrashing and learn to spot that, it's a better tool from just depending upon us catching our thoughts, catching our feelings. So for you, um, what do you do when you're thrashing and, and how do you catch and correct that? Well, so I would I, I, I love what you're suggesting there. And I would uh, add to it um, that the very like holding that as negative or positive isn't helpful for me mm -hmm. that it's not that that actually those difficult passages um are some of the greatest growth passages and i can give you an example so you know so one of the things that i do two things um and and you know a great example in in nature this are salmon when salmon as we know they're one of the, the only fish that swim upstream well when they're swimming upstream how do they navigate? You know, there's imagine they're swimming upstream. I write about this in the book of awakening. And when they're behind rocks, the current is blocked. So it's slower. So they know when, and when they find a passageway to go continue, actually the current is strongest. So when it's strongest against them, they know they're on their path mm -hmm. and they have to swim harder. And if they actually find it's too easy, they know they're stuck. Yeah. So, yeah. So I love that. That's very, that's very helpful. So, you know, the, my last book, More Together Than Alone, which is about community throughout history. And that took me 13 years to retrieve. I like to say retrieve rather than author. And, um, and that was very much a stop and go. Why it took that long, and certainly there was a lot of research, but why it took that long is because I could say that many of my other books are like returning to a familiar landscape, like say between the ocean, a shore between the ocean and mountains. And I just go along and learn, I pick up shells or whatever and, and, or the water. And when my bucket's full, that's a book. And then I go back and keep going. Well, this book was different. This book from the beginning had a different terrain. And so I, I think about difficulty as the terrain, not the difficulties in me, but I'm I'm learning about how to make path in a different terrain. So here, this was like climbing the side of a mountain, and I thought there was a path, and then all of a sudden there's no path. And okay, well, how do I find my way? And so it was like slow going and like hacking through brush. And so I would work on it for a few months, and it would beat me up. And, and then I'd go to the other books for a while because I needed to, you know, it wasn't. And at first I thought it was me. You know, I thought, I mean, it's the only book about halfway through all those years where I, th you know, any book, once I have a vision, I've never doubted that I, it may not look what I think it look like, but I'll never doubt that I'll recover it and retrieve it. But this was the only book that I thought halfway, I wonder if I'll ever finish this one. And because it would, I'd have to renew myself and actually gain strength from the other inquiries and then come back and go further. And it never, even in the revision stage in, in, toward publication, this particular book, it was always like that. It was slow, thick, like going through knee-high, you know, tall, head, you know, shoulder-high weeds and grass. And it just never, it never changed. And I had to acclimate to carving a path through that terrain Rather than saying, well, I got to get better uh, or hone my vision or be better skilled or no, that was just that was just it. So there's two two things here. You know, one is that and this is really interesting. You know, my father, who was a master woodworker who didn't understand poetry at all, and he's been gone about five years. He lived to be 93. And I only realized this after he passed. So when I was a boy, he had a a big workbench in the basement and, um, and you know, a big L bench and he had five or six vices and those vices were never empty. Like they always had different projects in him. So he would like, you know, chisel one thing and then he'd go to another project and glue this and then sand that. And 
he never taught it, and I didn't know I was learning it. But after he was gone, I realized that's how I work on books. That I I have always have several books going at once, until one says no, let's go, and then I stay with it. But that way they cross pollinate. That way, when the community book was thick going, you know, the other books I was working on refreshed me, and the word trust literally means follow your heart. And you couple that with a a Blake aphorism, which says straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to genius. Remembering that genius is not brilliance, but our attendant spirit. So not knowing how this is going to work, just following our heart and not attaching judgment. Like I go as far as I can and I go, and my heart says, go over here for a while. Not because that defeated me, but because that's the way I get back to here, and then that'll take me over here. And trust means following your heart, that there's a larger pattern that we discover that goes back to Plotinus, our tendency to unity. How do we find our tendency to unity? By following our heart. We're exactly aligned there, because as I talk about thrashing, it's like, that's the sign that you're doing something that matters. Because yeah. we, don't, we don't thrash about taking the trash out. We don't thrash <laughs> about all the minor things, right? Um, but we only really thrash about the big things, the, the creative work, the starting the nonprofit, the starting the business, the getting married, the moving across country. Those yeah. are the things that matter to us. So it's not a sign for something that's difficult. or, or It's difficult, but it's not negative. It's something to say, hey, this matters, and you got to stick with it, right? Um, because on the other side of that is the growth that you're looking for. Um, speaking of the other side, um, how do you celebrate at the end of a major project? Huh. Well, that's interesting because um, uh, I, I mostly just really uh, am quiet and, and uh, return to simple things. Like, you know, my wife's a potter and she's out in her pottery studio right now and our dog is with her. And so, you know, it's just like making a quiet meal and, uh, or going out with friends or, um, you know, or, you know, walking the dog. And, and I think, you know, it's really interesting because last year that, that community book was my 20th book. And, and I, I, you know, I was kind of surprised by that. I've just been like a worker bee all these years. And I look up and it was my wife, Susan, who said, Oh, we should have a party, you know? And, and, uh, so we had a party last summer, um, here where we had, you know, many loved ones and, and things. And, um, and that was really like uh, odd, but beautiful to stop and, and pause on that because, you know, the truth is I, uh, you know, given my cancer journey, I, I was, I've always just never taken for granted. I'm just here. This is beyond my wildest dreams. I, I never, you know, uh, imagined, you know, this much. And, um, and I think what I've also learned, you know, as a beginning artist or writer, oh, I was, you know, I wasn't like in the first book or two, like, am I really going to finish a book? I got, I hope, I, you know, it's just go and go and make sure I want to finish it. Well, you know, I, I, after 20, I, I know I'm going to finish them. And it's shifted. A couple of things have shifted. And one is that I've realized that in that first retrieval of the complete full draft to where it's really here, um, that's, there's a certain aspect of it being most alive and most transformative there. And I realize now that that's the heart of it. Like, um, and I, I treasure that. I think that's where I celebrate the most now is in it because I realize like we're never more alive than when we're in it, which kind of goes with your thrashing. And, and so, you know, the rest is so much as you know, the revision before you hand it in and the revision after and all, all to, to publication is a thousand things. And that's a wonderful, different kind of joy and a commitment to it. But really, when that first retrieval of the journey, wrestling that into being, um, I know that, you know, one, once that thing goes to bed, um, I mean, I'll teach from it and I'll speak from it, but I'll never like live it again. And so I've learned to celebrate and honor it in it 
and so grateful for that. Um, I don't. I guess there's a part of me that never feels more alive than than when I'm in that. You know, when I'm in that, really like, really, you want me to go in this direction? <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the the wonderful thing about expression is because when we're, it seems like when we're most happy, happiest, I should say, if happiest and the most challenged is when we're in the verb as opposed to the noun, like not when, not being a writer, but when we're writing, not being a poet, but when we're creating poetry, not when we're a painter or painting, right? And that's the closest you get to that sense of joy. And then once you step away from a finished work, you're no longer the verb anymore. Right. I, I agree with you completely. And th- this really speaks to uh, something I write about. I think there's a chapter in there about giving attention versus getting attention. And, you know, there's a certain aspect in the outer world of getting attention to get ahead, but giving attention is what enlivens our heart. And it all starts by recognizing and verifying, giving attention to what's around us is the process of expression that enlivens us. And getting attention ultimately is draining. So while some of that may be necessary in the outer world of circumstance, if we allow that to take precedence, we will extinguish ourselves because that's not why we're doing it ultimately, you know, and it's very interesting in our kind of reality TV culture, which is about anything but reality, you know, that everyone is looking to be a celebrity and to be recognized and verified when we're really desperate for something to celebrate, you know, and, and this life of expression is a very, uh, way that the heart needs to celebrate being here whatever form it takes. So I'm looking at the time and wow, we, it's been a wonderful conversation again. Thanks for joining me um, as the sure. guest for today's podcast or for the desk as the guest for today's episode. Um, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation. So oh. based upon what we talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Well, here, here's a, uh, and I, we got so talking, but let me give a, I, a, 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 Two, two invitations. One is more practical, and that is we, we had talked before on air that next year I'm going to be offering three uh, different kinds of ways to be in journeys with me um, over a year through a deep dive and through a weekend. And on my website, you can find a video and details about that, but they'll all be for small groups, like 30 people, so we can really journey intimately. So my invitation is, is to uh, on the, in, in the in the outer world is to invite people to come on an inner journey with me and and given what we've been talking about you know my invitation for anyone who's listening whether you're you feel you're an artist or not is to to very specifically try to practice in the next week a way that you perceive and feel inhale with your heart and a way that you express. Pay attention and, and, and lean into whatever way that that comes up that feels enlivening to you because what is not expressed is depressed. So how does your heart inhale and exhale? What does that look like in your life specifically? Thank you so much, Mark. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Mark. In the next week, what can you pay exquisite attention to so that you receive it? And how are you going to exhale that at the same time? Remember, what is what is not expressed is depressed. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.